Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in the podcast studio Dr. Mahri Irvine and Hannah Stewart. Dr. Irvine serves as the Sexual Violence Services Program Coordinator for the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control. Also in South Carolina, we know that as DHEC. She manages federal funds for contracts for South Carolina's 15 rape crisis centers and state coalition and provides statewide training and assistance for sexual violence prevention and response. And joining us again is Hannah Stewart, Primary Prevention and Specialized Advocacy Coordinator at the South Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. And we also have a disclaimer that the Department of Health sometimes likes to require, I know, and we also have a disclaimer on our podcast webpage. Um, however, I'll go ahead and read it for this episode. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations in this podcast are those of Dr. Irvine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the state, DHEC, and U.S. Department of Justice or Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Mentions of any companies or products do not constitute endorsement by the state of South Carolina, DHEC, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So after all that, welcome to the fifth installment of the Prevention Podcast. Oh, it's so great to be back. Thank you so much to both of you for inviting me to be here. <laughs> Glad to have yeah. you here. So like I mentioned, this is the fifth installment. This is fifth in a series of podcasts relating to domestic violence and sexual assault. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about sexual violence prevention and response. And um, a lot of times these conversations are difficult to have, but it's something that, you know, if you discuss it in an adult academic manner, you are just gathering and getting information. So, um, so Mari, tell us about what you do at uh, the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control and what kind of programs you work with. Sure, um, so once again, thanks so much to both of you for having me here. And so at DHEC, um, I tend to do a lot of grant administration work, mm -hmm. which means um, in my role, I'm responsible for making sure all of our reports get done and all of our applications get done to make sure that all the rape crisis centers in uh, South Carolina, as well as Scavasa, which is Hannah's agency, mm -hmm. um, continue to get funding um, from two different federal funding sources, uh, the Office on Violence Against Women and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And then I also administer um, state funds. So that's money that comes from the South Carolina um, state government and mm -hmm. goes directly to the rape crisis center. So I do lots of reporting and data collecting and analysis and um, application writing. Um, I also review um, all of the financial invoices that our agencies send that's in every an month. So, <laughs> yeah, that's so um, I've been in my position almost a year. Um, and so I'm actually really happy that we're going to be um, expanding our program a little bit. And so I'll have some more um, clerical and administrative support for the financial stuff, which means mm -hmm. I'll get to do um, start to get involved with more educational stuff, uh, get to work with Hannah more, hopefully get to do, you know, more projects even with the library system. Okay. And you mentioned, uh, I think you said some of the funding you get is from the, is it a Department of Violence Against Women? It's, what is that? Um, so it's the Office on Violence Against Women. Mm -hmm. And that is a government agency through the U.S. Department of Justice. Okay. And so that particular funding source, um, it's SASP. It's the Sexual Assault Services 
formula program. Mm -hmm. And that money goes to uh, rape crisis centers all over the country. And that's specifically for direct victim services to support survivors of sexual assault. And that money can be used by agencies to help support primary survivors. So those are people who directly, you know, survived sexual victimization. And that money can also be used by agencies to help support secondary survivors. And so those are loved ones, friends, family okay. members who are, you know, when when somebody survives a sexual assault, mm -hmm. they're that primary survivor, but that um, violence has a real ripple impact, you know, and um, really so can sometimes very profoundly affect their family members and their friends and other people who care about them. And so sometimes those people need to call a hotline and get mm. some assistance or want to come in for counseling. Okay. Um, so just for our listeners to be able to understand the kind of hierarchy, you have the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control. And then under that, you have the crisis centers? Yeah. So... Um, DHEC is what's known as, in for my position at least, we're a pass-through entity, mm -hmm. a pass-through agency. So mm -hmm. that means that um, we receive money from uh, money specifically for sexual violence prevention from mm -hmm. the CDC Center for Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Mm -hmm. So they give um, DHEC money to manage and administer, and then the Office on Violence Against Women also gives DHEC money to administer and manage. Mm -hmm. And then the state of South Carolina also gives a big chunk of money um, to DHEC. And so what we do is we basically take that money and we pass it through DHEC, and then we distributed out to all 15 rape crisis centers and to Skavasa. Okay. So um, in federal funding language, the rape crisis centers and Skavasa are what is known as sub-recipients. So DHEC is the yeah. recipient of the funds, and then we pass that money through and out to all of our sub-recipients. And it's kind of the same way with libraries in a lot of states. For instance, we're a pass-through agency for libraries in South Carolina. So we get federal funding through the Institute of Museums and Library Services, and we offer grants. And so a lot of agencies do that, that kind mm -hmm. of process. Um, tell us a little bit how um, you said there were 15 rape crisis centers in South Carolina, and how do they work? Um, so they are all nonprofit agencies, and they all range from about maybe a staff of seven or eight um, up to, I know we have one agency that has, I think right now, 52 employees. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they really are diverse in terms of the number of staff they have, um, as well as the number of volunteers. And those rape crisis centers, I really like how South Carolina is set up. Um, so there are these 15 rape crisis centers, but they are set up throughout the state in a very organized manner so that every single county in South Carolina has a specific rape crisis center that serves it. Mm -hmm. So no matter what county somebody is living in, if they need assistance, they're able to go to a designated rape crisis center. Mm -hmm. um, and our, our agencies, our rape crisis centers, they're funded not just by DHEC. We're actually a very sort of small pot of money <laughs> compared uh -huh. to some other funders. So. Um, a lot of them also receive funding from DSS, Department of Social Services. Mm -hmm. um, some of them receive funding from the Attorney General's Office, oh, okay. um, as well as a variety of other funders. Um, and some of them are what's known as a standalone rape crisis center. So their sole mission and purpose is to work on sexual violence issues in mm -hmm. South Carolina. Mm -hmm. But others are a dual agency, and so they work on both domestic violence and sexual violence. 
And then others work on sexual violence, and then they're also designated child advocacy centers. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, their funding streams are very complicated depending on just what, you know, their, what their mission is and how they're structured. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that we talked about before we started the podcast episode today is one of those difficult kind of conversations that uh, comes up. And a lot of people, you know, for the most part, just don't feel in casual conversation having this conversation. But it's something that libraries certainly deal with, with public workstations. And that's the issue of pornography. Mm -hmm. And so um, you're going to talk a little bit about maybe your research and, and different things that relate to sexual violence and pornography. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so back when um, there was a, an employee previously with Scavasa named Kendra, and she and I were, were sitting around talking about potential topics for um, this library podcast series, and um, she and I both were very adamantly against pornography because mm-hmm. we're, we're educated about it. And so she asked me if I'd be interested in doing this particular topic, talking about um, how if we really want to eradicate rape culture and we want to change culture for the better, we also need to have really honest, comprehensive, um, open conversations about pornography and, and the role that it plays in rape culture. Mm-hmm. So I was really excited um, you know, to be put on the agenda and mm-hmm. really excited that Hannah kept me on the <laughs> agenda and has been planning this for, um, for months um, because it's really a very, very serious topic. But as you said, it's it's also a topic that a lot of people shy away from mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes the topic of pornography so complex and difficult is because in U.S. rape culture, it's actually pornography use and consumption has become extremely normalized mm-hmm. and accepted, especially mm-hmm. among younger generations of people. Yet at the same time, so it's it's normalized in the sense it's joked about. Um, there's a, a certain very powerful and wealthy pornography um, company right now that has made this announcement that during the coronavirus pandemic, you know, they're making their website free to everyone in Italy so they can stay home and watch <laughs> porn. <laughs> um, my professional advice is please don't do that. It's not going to help anybody. Mm. <laughs> but so it's very accepted in some ways and then on the on the other hand though it's still a very taboo topic and no one wants to talk about it and mm-hmm. so that makes mm-hmm. it an even more toxic um, issue that we have to work on because we're we're trying to explain to people we're, we're trying to educate folks about it mm-hmm. but at the same time there's real pushback we, we don't want to talk about it and that's um you know one one point um, this is a paraphrased quote by um, a really wonderful faculty member and researcher named dr. Rebecca Wisnant. Mm-hmm. And um, I attended a lecture by her a few years ago, and she does intensive research on pornography. And kudos to anyone who can do academic mm-hmm. research on it. I've, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a very visual person, and mm-hmm. so I've every time I've tried to even, um, you know, look at anyone's research on pornography, mm-hmm. um, it's so overwhelming and so sickening to me. I actually have a very difficult time with it. So I, I think. Sure. That's a whole nother conversation about the vicarious trauma with researchers. Right. Um, but so she she points out that pornography is not about sex at all, actually. Pornography is about the sexualization and eroticization of power imbalances, hierarchies, and abuse. Mm. And that's what we see over and over again in pornography. What, what these... Um, 
filmmakers and photographers are depicting, mm -hmm. it's not actually really even recognizable about consensual, mutually pleasurable sexual activities. It's mm -hmm. actually, there's always an issue in there about some kind of a power imbalance, mm -hmm. whether it's a social power imbalance, um, an economic power imbalance, and a drug addiction issue, um, some, some type of hierarchy or abuse that's being played out. Mm -hmm. And then we as viewers are being encouraged to literally become sexually aroused by that. And right. so that's sort of the intention is to get people to associate abuse and violence with sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it makes it, um, that even makes it more difficult to talk about because you you put on the psychology on top of everything mm -hmm. and um, it just makes it very complicated. Mm -hmm. um, as far as what your research is and, and uh, in, in your area of expertise, how does the, um, the pornography industry um, and, you know, dealing with the race rape crisis centers, how, how does all that come together? So in terms of what the rape crisis centers currently work on? Or? Well, it's kind of, I, I don't really know how to word it, but it's kind of like do, um, be, because of, you know, the um, uh, rape depictions in pornography, do you, you know, see anything different at the rape crisis centers or... I, I don't know how yeah, it kind no, of I, all fits I, together. I, I think we can absolutely say unequivocally, without a doubt, if we look at national research, international research, there are, I'll use the unscientific term, loads and loads and loads yeah. and tons uh -huh. of research articles. Um, I was at a conference a few years ago, and Dr. John Fobert, who's a nationally recognized researcher mm -hmm. <laughs> on the impact of pornography, you know, he said, there's over 100 research articles now showing, um, you know, correlation, causation with sexual violence and other forms of violence and pornography. So mm -hmm. there is a massive amount of research. Um, I was actually preparing just sort of a little um, resource guide that I don't know if we would be able to put up along with a link yeah. on the, the podcast. Oh, yeah, but sure. We'd be happy to. Yeah, there are several organi national organizations that, you know, if you go to their websites, they give you links to all of these research studies that show mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. consumption of pornography is very, very much connected to sexual violence. Um, and what we're seeing in terms of now in South Carolina, I don't have specific, you know, data mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on that, although um, in my role, I'm able to, um, you know, ask the rape crisis centers to contribute different types of data, obviously anonymous aggregated sure. data about clients. And that's something I'm definitely really interested in starting to do more work with them to mm -hmm. see if, if we can start tracking the impact of pornography in their in the cases that they're seeing. But um, Again, nationally at, at conferences I've gone to and, and talking with colleagues, they are definitely reporting, you know, therapists, forensic nurse examiners, uh, law enforcement. They're saying we're seeing more and more the impact of porn. Um, there is a forensic nurse examiner who works on child sexual abuse cases mm -hmm. at a hospital in, I believe she was in... Kansas or Ohio. She was at an, one of the country's busiest children's hospitals, and she did a presentation two years ago at a conference I was at, and she said the number of cases has absolutely skyrocketed at their children's hospital 
where pretty much she said every almost every single child sexual abuse case that comes in now where the perpetrator is also a child or a teenager mm-hmm. there's a history of porn consumption in that perpe- wow. that child perpetrator's background mm-hmm. um, and we're just seeing increasing reports of you know teenagers and even younger kids when they're doing like group sexual assaults or even just one-on-one sexual assaults they're actually filming those sexual assaults Mm. and sometimes you know sharing them out with friends putting them up online and it's like where do we think they're getting these ideas right you know Mm -hmm. children aren't born thinking i'm gonna go rape another child and also videotape it and you know record it on my phone right right. and you know that goes into the impact of the internet and what is accessible nowadays Mm -hmm. and also you know how parents need to be aware of installing filters and right. all of that kind of stuff but it's very difficult yeah well one thing I, we were just talking about at our community educators roundtable last friday was how do we facilitate these conversations with parents and children about pornography mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, especially now that computers are becoming more and more popular in schools uh, we have the filters on there but we know that students are learning at an expedient rate about how to get around those filters. Mm -hmm. And with this normalization of pornography, Mm -hmm. uh, they don't feel that what they're doing is wrong or that it's uncomfortable. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing younger and younger children being exposed to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because younger and younger children now have cell phones, smartphones. Yeah, Yeah. and there's um, been several really good recent sort of investigative journalist pieces Mm -hmm. about the um, way that predators are accessing young kids through video games. You know, basically, Mm -hmm. if you have Mm -hmm. any type of computer game or video game or app on your phone that's connected to the internet, a predator is going to be there essentially trying to access young children Mm -hmm. Um, and you know they have all kinds of strategies to do that in a way that seems very innocent to to start Mm -hmm. grooming those kids and I think um, I printed off like um, so there's a wonderful organization called fight the new drug and um, their website is just Mm -hmm. fightthenewdrug.org and they're probably the number one resource I would suggest to anybody in general who's interested in learning more about the impact of pornography Mm -hmm. um, as well as ways to respond to it and to try to prevent sexual violence. Um, So they've got tons and tons of different articles. um, And so one article I printed off was just a quick sort of like, you know, six things parents should think about when, you know, talking with their kids about pornography. And, you know, the very last sentence is saying, if parents don't teach their boys and girls about consent and healthy sex, porn will. And I think that's a hard, Mm. it's a hard pill for a lot of parents to swallow because what they want to, you know, they're like, well, I put a filter on my kid's phone, so he's safe or she's safe. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, not every parent's going to do that. So as soon as they go to school or they go to their friend's house after school, if their friend doesn't have all that technology filters, Mm -hmm. the friend is going to show them. And so it's, it's, it's really, if we don't have caregivers and role models and parents Mm -hmm having really honest conversations with their kids, their kids are going to learn about it from other ways, and those other ways are not going to be Exactly, good. and yeah. that's one of the things that, you know, in my brain when we are talking about libraries in this mix, you know, public libraries oftentimes have public access workstations, and, mm-hmm. you know, they do have to comply with SEPA, which is the Child Internet Protection Act, um, and uh, many of them do have filters at a certain level of filtration of internet access. 
But, you know, the important thing is if someone is in a library and they see something that may be going on that someone has gotten around a filter, you know, the, the thing to keep in mind is if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are in a situation like that, then you need to let someone know. Yeah, absolutely. And that applies definitely to someone's activity in a library, you know, in a school, anywhere. And I love that you, you know, you brought up that whole, if you see something, say something, because essentially that's bystander intervention behavior that (laughs) we want to talk with people about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where we we come into this really challenging atmosphere in U.S. rape culture today that people have so normalized pornography consumption. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's considered a joke. You know, they'll be like, Mm -hmm. I don't do it, but everybody else does. Ha ha, that's fine. And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, wait, but really you should be intervening because what you're acknowledging then is that people are using torture and abuse as as forms of sexual entertainment (laughs) right right yeah Yeah. it's yeah it's a a huge challenge what um kinds of things at skedvasa are you um, training about in this area we're not uh doing a whole lot of work around that right now Mm -hmm. it's um something i've been very passionate about Mm -hmm. uh throughout my life and it's something that i really want to work on mm-hmm. uh, through this position um, hopefully try to you know build some trainings around it some manuals um, definitely do more research on it but it's, mm-hmm. it's a passion project of mine mm-hmm. personally um, and you know yeah. I will say um, in terms of Sagasa not necessarily doing a whole lot of trainings or professional right. developments mm-hmm. right now that's actually I would say not unusual right. for state okay. coalitions and mm-hmm. not unusual for rape crisis centers and that in my opinion, profession, my professional opinion, that leads us back to the the profound impact that rape culture and hypersexualization culture mm-hmm. has on people, even in the anti-violence movement. That mm-hmm. um, I've I've you know said to colleagues over the years who have sort of just entered into the anti, into the what's known as feminist abolitionism, which mm-hmm. is opposition to prostitution, which mm-hmm. includes pornography. Right. I said this is one of the topics that destroys people's professional friendships and relationships mm-hmm. and sure. friendships because yeah. people there are some folks out there who are so wedded to the idea that pornography is a great thing and mm. is empowering mm-hmm. um, and at very much mo- you know they say sort of at best case scenario you should just be neutral about it and never mm. tell anyone that what they're doing is wrong mm-hmm. and so I've seen professionally a lot of anti-sexual violence organizations they won't come out and take a public stand really? because they say well, you know, we need to respect everybody's views, and some people really say they enjoy it, and so therefore, mm-hmm. you know, they, you know, and and so it's right. it's really it's I would say it's not unusual at all for a state coalition yeah. to actually never do anything about this topic. Yeah. And well, I would agree so. with you because doing some of this research from that roundtable where they were asking what are other states doing, and then reaching out to other state mm-hmm. coalitions where, mm-hmm. you know. I, there wasn't a whole lot of yeah. information on it. And I think from, you know, from a leadership perspective, and I'll just speak, again, I'm speaking about myself, but, mm-hmm. um, like, I have an active Twitter account, which I'm always very careful <laughs> I don't do on DHEC time. <laughs> but over the years, you know, I'm I'm very, um, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and, you know, I speak out at conferences and presentations, and I've had a number of colleagues in our anti-violence mm-hmm. movement mm-hmm. who come up to me privately on the side, and they say, thank you so much for saying this. Mm. I'm too afraid to say this mm. because 
I'm afraid I'll be professionally shut down. And maybe it's yeah. just because I have a big mouth and I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, this is such a pressure. It's a, it's an urgent it public is. health issue yeah. and an urgent social justice issue. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think from a leadership perspective, we, I think there are a lot of people who quietly are very worried about pornography, mm-hmm. but until they're organ, you know, they see organizations coming forward sure. and speaking out, they, they feel too afraid to come forward. How do you deal with the argument, and you may come across this a lot in your research, that there's a certain artistic expression, and that artistic expression shouldn't be, um, you know, dealt with or questioned? Mm-hmm. Um, there, I suppose I always just sort of put that in the same line as you could also um, take photos and videos of drowning puppies and throwing kittens mm-hmm. in front of trains, and mm-hmm. you could say that's an artistic expression. Right. And we could maybe have a philosophical debate about that, but I think from a, a health perspective and a justice perspective mm-hmm. and a mm-hmm. what kind of uh, society do we want to work towards and build towards? Mm-hmm. Uh, why would we ever say that prom- like promoting and normalizing abuse and degradation mm-hmm. and humiliation? I always sort of just want to say back to people, is is that really, so to quote Mary Oliver, who's one of my favorite poets and like spiritual guides, she has this wonderful poem about, you know, you have one wild and precious life. Mm-hmm. And I always want to be like, is that what you want to do with your wild and precious life? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, it really brings up a lot of, of thoughts that, you know, dealing with this delicate topic, which a lot of people are not comfortable talking about, as we've mentioned, um, is something important to mm-hmm. talk about and important to actually think about. And, you know, when we throw public access to information into the mix with how public libraries provide um, access to the internet and you know how if if someone else walking by sees something you know that we all need to be aware um, not only in the library profession not only in your profession um, but in in every profession we need to think of these things and um, you know have a have a constructive conversation about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so since we've talked a lot about libraries, how, how can libraries um, be in this mix of, of this issue? I mean, I think that, first of all, even having some starter conversations like this is mm-hmm. always a good way to start off. Um, ho- you know, I would say hosting educational Um, sessions, right? Making space available for concerned community members, parents. Um, I bet you'd have a lot of concerned teachers and school administrators, right? right? From honestly, even first, second grade, third grade at this point, Mm -hmm. sadly, all the way up through high school, Mm -hmm. you know, college administrators. Um, And I think that right now we're, we're still at this point where general education Mm -hmm. is, is incredibly important because a lot of people who don't consume porn, so those are people in older generations, um, as well as some younger generations, mm-hmm. they have no idea what is being featured and normalized in pornography mm-hmm. these days. And so mm-hmm. by educational sessions about that, I don't mean we have to show porn, um, mm-hmm. but even then, right, I've attended professional presentations where you know they'll blur some things out, but mm-hmm. to be like, literally this this is what your 10 year old child is going to be exposed to on a daily basis mm-hmm. and so if you know sometimes people 
don't take a threat seriously because they don't even realize it's a threat in the first place. So mm-hmm. they're, they're, I think we are at a point where we still need to do a lot of education about why, why are we as professionals saying this is a really serious problem? Right. Um, and then educating parents, teachers, any type of bystander, um, how to respond appropriately, right? If you mm-hmm. hear someone normalizing this type of activity, right. um, as well as then educating um, adults in general about um, proper technology use and ways to try to safeguard kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, I, and I have heard of a lot of libraries having those kinds of sessions mm-hmm. as far as how can you limit access on a child's cell phone or a mm-hmm. home um, home computer Mm -hmm. and those are the kinds of educational sessions that I know some libraries in South Mm -hmm. Carolina have been able to provide but uh, it's certainly something that should be much more widespread in my opinion. Yeah and I know that um, in and honestly I would say in in every state in the country I know people often paint a state as red or blue you know or being more friendly to sex education but you know i will say and i don't have kids but i have nieces and nephews Mm -hmm. and i like i can be a sympathetic adult and think it's i understand it's awkward for most adults to think about talking about sex with kids you know with with their kids because Mm -hmm. sex is um unlike what pornography tries to tell us sex is actually it's a really complex emotional physiological experience for people and so that can feel very scary and overwhelming for adults to think about wow I have to have a you know I need to talk about this this pleasurable thing with Mm -hmm. my kid right it can be Mm -hmm. embarrassing for adults um but again you know like that quote I read from the article earlier if parents and caregivers don't talk to their children about sex the internet will pornography will end up teaching them really bad things that Mm -hmm. you know about violence and and control and so you know, figuring out ways just to help adults feel more comfortable um, and recognizing that there are age appropriate, culturally appropriate ways to talk with kids about sex. And just because you're talking with a 10 year old about sex, that doesn't mean you're encouraging that kid to have sex. You're just you're you're again, you're working towards trying to help your kid grow up to be a thoughtful, reflective, well-educated human being. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, kids are being exposed to pornography whether it's intentional or accidental they're being exposed to pornography at really early ages Mm -hmm. now and so we really have to um, help adults feel comfortable about having age-appropriate conversations about sex Mm -hmm. Um, so in south carolina can libraries reach out to skadvasa or uh, reach out to dhec and uh, get more information or request training yeah, completely, of course. And, um, you know, it's one of those things if we're not able to maybe facilitate that conversation, we may not be the experts, um, you know, reaching out to our member organizations as well or doing that legwork for y'all. We're always mm-hmm. happy to help anyone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think, you know, between Skavasa um, and DHEC and all of the rape crisis centers, you know, yeah. we're all very well connected, you know, regionally, but also nationally. Yes. We're, I'd say, probably every employee at a rape crisis center at Skavasa, and I, I know myself, we're all members of different national organizations. Mm-hmm. We're well connected, and so mm-hmm. we we have lots and lots of resources we can provide. And that's the important thing, I think, to remind um, folks is while this is a very, you know, delicate uh, topic, 
it's it's something that is important mm-hmm. to discuss and important to if you haven't thought about it yet to be thinking about it right. and, and just kind of understand um, you know enough about it to be able to have a a conversation mm-hmm. just as a starting point so on a little bit of a lighter note um, do you have any kind of library stories or experiences that you'd like to share with anyone I do, and I'm so happy. It has nothing to do with rape culture or <laughs> pornography or abuse or anything. It's just, um, yeah, when I, I, I saw you had that, that prompt for me a little earlier, um, I thought, I actually do. Um, so when I, I, I had a very unusual childhood, I grew up um, from the ages of two to six. I grew up on the side of a mountain mm-hmm. in Southern California mm-hmm. uh, in a travel trailer with no electricity. Wow. So that's a whole long story I won't go into. <laughs> Lived there with my family for four years with no electricity. We just had a generator. Uh-huh. And, um, and we went to a little um, school. It was actually an underground school dug into the side of a mountain. It was wow. super cool. <laughs> this is why I'm so weird. <laughs> and... Um, our school didn't have a library uh-huh. and we were obviously very very rural and so our community we had a bookmobile that would come around okay and because so and there was a limit i think all the kids got to get three books mm-hmm. every time mm-hmm. but my mom was an advocate for us and i i grew up my wonderful dad would read us bedtime stories mm-hmm. every night um we my parents really encouraged book reading and a mm-hmm. love of, of learning and so my mom made an arrangement. We got to have, get like 10 books at a time because we didn't have a TV. Okay. Um, and so I grew up when I was a little kid, I thought that's what libraries were. I thought they were just bookmobiles. Mm. And then we moved to um, a, a, a city, Modesto, which is mm. in California. Mm-hmm. And Modesto has this absolutely beautiful, super old building that's its library. And it... When I remember walking up the steps, I mean, it's got these pillars and columns, and I said to my mom, oh, mommy, look, it's a palace of books. (laughs) 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 And it was, in my child's mind, it was the most amazing thing Uh ever because uh it was more books than I'd ever seen in one space before. So I will always very fondly remember Modesto Library. (laughs) As the palace of books. That's great. That's a wonderful story. Um, So, yeah, we, you know, like I said, we can go from having these difficult conversations to having a, a nice little ending like that where, you know, there's a palace of books and all kinds of research and <laughs> yeah. information in libraries. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, a message to any educators who are listening, but especially parents and caregivers and, and you know, um, community leaders who really care about this, really sort of putting everything into perspective, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. pornography, culture is a it's a very it can be feel very frightening and overwhelming but we're also all in this together and mm-hmm. i think that can help people feel like that load can lighten a little bit like yep. agencies like scavasa dhec all of the rape crisis centers the mm-hmm. the entire library system here you know we we have professional networks and community networks as well where mm-hmm. i think as long as people keep in mind they don't have to go it alone as a parent right. they don't have to figure out right. this out by themselves mm-hmm. um, they have a really wide network of people to yep. support them so check with dhec check with skadvasa check with your local public library and you'll be able to find out a lot more information so thank you so much for being with us today thank you thank you And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. 
Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.